When Julie Sanvo took her son to his first day of school in Burgundy, the greeting she got wasn't quite what she expected. The first day of school in France, I took him to kindergarten. They, they took him by the hand and pulled him in the classroom and shut the door. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Our panel of European moms are back with a look at the ways Europeans educate their kids. In Sweden, it starts with a very generous paid parental leave. We stay at home with our own children for 480 days. We'll also see how European traditions translate into local comfort foods in the American Midwest with Jane and Michael Stern. Because there's so many really good German butchers in and around Cincinnati. And believe me, if, if you like hot dog type foods, this is like the, the uber hot dog. Or check out a neighborhood Polish restaurant in Chicago. They will serve you what they call funeral lunch, which is duck soup and uh, spetzel. And oh my gosh, it was absolutely incredible goulash. That and more is just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Back to school time can also mean back to debating education policies where you live time. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we've invited back our panel of European moms who've joined us just a few weeks ago. They're here today to talk about the education system and how it works in their country, what they like and what they don't. It promises to provide an interesting contrast with how things work where you live as we find out how policies and expectations differ between Scandinavia, France, and Slovenia. We'll also check in with listeners who have stories to share of unexpected surprises they've enjoyed in their travels. They've enjoyed them because they turned them into happy travel memories. Let's start with our friends Jane and Michael Stern. They're the experts at finding the most interesting and authentic regional comfort foods all across the United States. Their newly revised road food guide includes some great new finds. It highlights restaurants and takeout joints from Nebraska to the Dakotas, from the Ohio Valley to the Upper Peninsula, places where food is inspired by old-world recipes that'll make even a road tripper feel right at home. Jane and Michael, good to have you back. Great to be here, Hi, Rick. You guys have been at this for 35 years now. You're just finding it's the fountain of youth. Eating all this road food keeps you young and frisky. We're still hungry. <laughs> That's for sure. How do you work up an appetite when you're researching? Uh, it's not difficult. You know, when you walk into a really good restaurant, the aroma itself is yes. enough to stimulate appetite. Michael and I were in Hatch, New Mexico, which uh. is the chili capital of New Mexico. And when the chili harvest, the red and green peppers are ready, mm. the chili pickers put out these large charcoal or wood-fired roasters by the side of the highway. Oh. And they roast the chilies, and the aroma is unbelievable. And if you stop, they will give you a length of a baguette or a piece of French bread and the charred, peeled, roasted peppers on them. Oh, my God, that is so delicious. Nice. So now how's your book? You got the ninth edition out. How is it different from the eighth edition? Well, for one thing, it has 900 restaurants instead of 700 as in the previous edition. And more important, what's new for this edition, we've never done it before, is among the 900 restaurants, all of which we think are well worth a visit, is the Road Food Honor Roll. This is a list of the 100 most important restaurants, the essential restaurants. If you want to get a taste of America, the Road Food Honor Roll is 100 restaurants where you will get that taste mm. at its finest. Nice. Now, I want to talk about the Midwest here and road food in the Midwest. And I know when I go to Nebraska, it's almost a patriotic duty to eat red meat. I was just <laughs> in North Dakota driving through Bismarck and stopped by a little roadside diner and, and the sign on the wall said, it just felt like this is a no hippies kind of place. It said, because <laughs> because you did what you did, you got what you got. That was the poster that welcomed oh, diners wow. there, you know. And I, I wondered from you guys' point of view, uh, because you go all over the United States, and I get a sense there's a little bit of irreverence in your writing and so on. Do you find the, the same welcome throughout the country? And sometimes do you get into a redneck place uh, where you just feel like, oh, let's be careful what we say? Or how do you characterize just the the culture in the diners, from poor to rich parts, from conservative to liberal parts? Well, I'll tell you, when we started way back, you know, in the late 70s, this was like the, we were still in the afterglow of the sort of hippie, easy rider era or, you know, heaven forbid we have long hair and not fit in. And we would walk into diners. We still do walk into a strange diner and suddenly everyone stops what they're doing and looks at us. <laughs> and I think, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen now? In fact, what we've learned over the years is 99 out of 100 times. They stop and look at you just because you're a stranger, not because they are about to kill you. <laughs> um, honestly, we've never really encountered any kind of 
hostility, and especially because once we get into a place and I pull out my camera and start taking pictures of the food and ask people about, is there another place where you can get a good biscuit around here? That kind of curiosity about people's own local way of eating makes people really friendly. They want to share their finds. I want to talk about the Midwest, and I'm impressed when I travel about the proud and vivid subcultures within our melting pot society. Just last week, I happened to be passing through Bismarck, and I didn't realize there is a proud Russian-German immigrant community there, and it certainly showed itself in the food. So if you're going to eat well in Bismarck or eat typical, you'd want to go to a Russian-German diner, and then you'd learn about the potato soup and the Fleischkugel and, and so on. Give me your take on subcultures, ethnic communities, and how that impacts the food you might choose with a smart road trip eating plan. Well, I was just thinking, Michael, by the way, is from Illinois, so I may at some point during this Midwestern segment just go out for a coffee break and let him do everything. But one of the great things to eat in Chicago land is Polish food. Michael, aren't there more Poles in Chicago than there are in Poland? Poland. (laughs) Right. But the great thing to eat in Chicago is funeral lunches, which sounds very morbid. But in fact, there are Polish restaurants often don't speak a word of English and they will serve you what they call funeral lunch, which is kind of somewhere between lunch and dinner. And it's duck soup and spetzel and, oh my gosh, it was absolutely incredible goulash. Well, it would behoove a traveler to know what is the ethnic mix just from the immigrant point of view of a, of a region before they choose their road food stop, I would imagine. You're right, and the Midwest is particularly rich in that kind of food. I, for some reason, there are a lot of parts of the Midwest in cities as well as some kind of almost isolated small towns where... Immigrants, you know, from all over the world have really kept their traditions very much alive. I'm thinking in Cincinnati, for example, one of the great street foods of Cincinnati and really only Cincinnati is the Met, short for Metwurst. Uh. And it's because there's so many really good German butchers in and around Cincinnati. And believe me, if you like hot dog type foods, this is like the uber hot dog. Nice. And Pella, Iowa still is very proud of their Dutch heritage. I think there are six little cafes there that all serve Dutch food. Pella bologna, the Dutch lettuce, yes. And that's true throughout the Midwest. I mean, some of the Russian-German influence that you were talking about in North Dakota, you see that a lot also in Nebraska. In and around Lincoln, there's a a specialty food called a runza, R-U-N-Z-A, also known as a birok, which is sort of an import from what they call the Volga Germans, people, people who came there. And you won't find it anywhere else, and it's in various places. It's called a cabbage burger. What it is is a sort of a pastry filled with beef and onions. So it's Germans who went to Russia and picked up that culture and then came to the United States. Exactly, exactly. And then in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, you have the Cornish pasty, which the uh, coal miners from Cornwall came over with. Great. Exactly. And and Cornish pasties in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan are, are really more popular than hamburgers. Well, there you go. Take me. Jane and Michael Stern have recently updated their road food guide to 900 of the best barbecue joints, lobster shacks, ice cream parlors, and highway diners across the lower 48. They also offer road food road trip itineraries. It's on their website at, of course, roadfood.com. They're joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves with a special focus on the tasty treats you can find in the Midwest. And uh, Clara's calling in from Cincinnati in Ohio. Clara, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you for having me on the program. Yeah. Do you have uh, some thoughts on places we want to be sure to eat at when we go to Cincinnati? Well, Cincinnati is is known for its chili, obviously, and Michael just mentioned the Metwurst. A lot of people don't know that Cincinnati has the largest Oktoberfest in the United States. So there's obviously lots of Metwurst served that weekend. (laughs) So a lot of Germans um, in Cincinnati then, remembering uh, their heritage. Yes. We even have a section called Over the Rhine. Um, which was uh, a neighborhood north of a canal that the British people would, would call over the Rhine because they were making fun of the Germans on the north side of the canal, which <laughs> is now a, a roadway. Um, recently, uh, National Geographic traveler lauded us for our, among other things, our eclectic non-chili cuisine. So other than the Metwurst, I was wondering um, if Michael had any other memorable Cincinnati food moments that he wanted to share. Without a doubt, I would definitely mention Geta, which is G-O-E-T-T-A. 
and if I say this, people in Cincinnati will be very angry with me. It's vaguely like Scrapple, but way better. It's like pork and pin oat loaf that is, again, made mostly by the German butchers in town. And it's served at breakfast. It's sliced and fried, and it's kind of crisp and porky mm. and really a delicious breakfast meat that's very different from bacon and sausage. The other weird thing about Cincinnati, and this I can't explain, is it is a great ice cream town. There's graters, of which there are many branches around town, which makes this great it's not even chocolate chip ice cream. It's ice cream with these big chocolate hunks in it. And also there's a place called Aglamesis Brothers. There are two of them. And these are really great old-fashioned ice cream parlors, all decorated in pink with wrought iron chairs. And the ice cream there is stupendous at both these places. Why this is unique to Cincinnati, I don't know, but it is. You know, this whole discussion makes me celebrate a dimension of a melting pot society that I hadn't really considered. And it's just the variety of food that we get to enjoy because we're a melting pot society. And I think it makes sense to celebrate that in our travels and, and stoke it with our patronage and uh, enjoy that. And don't forget, Rick, that Cincinnati chili really is Macedonian. <laughs> right. um, the, the weird spices are chocolate, cinnamon, all these oh. very, very strange Macedonian mixtures. Nice. People either love it or hate it. <laughs> Was that right? No middle I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Let's take a vote. How do you? How about you, Clara? Love it or hate it? Oh, I, I adore it. I oh, think okay. it's the great at a Cincinnati Reds baseball game. Thanks for your call. All right. Jane and Michael, let's just finish it off with dessert. When you're road tripping around the Midwest, what desserts get you uh, excited to return to the Midwest? Okay, I go first this time. Sour cream raisin pie mm. in Wisconsin, the great Midwestern dessert, and also Iowa. Sour cream raisin pie. Okay, because Charles from Naperville, uh, Illinois, just emailed us, and he said he spent his summers in rural Minnesota and loves the sour cream raisin pie. Where's well, the best place to right. get this type of pie? Jane, what are you thinking is the best place to get sour cream raisin pie? I, I will say the best place to get sour cream raisin pie is Lang's Cafe in Pipestone, Minnesota. It's in the far western part of Minnesota, and they make superb sour cream raisin nice. pie. Okay, Michael, your favorite dessert in the Midwest? Well, I can never resist a turtle sundae. Throughout the Midwest, all the ice creameries there are outdo each other with like ice cream, chocolate sauce, caramel sauce, and salted chopped hot nuts on top. To me, that is like the ultimate ice cream dessert. Salted chopped hot nuts on top. You guys are just <laughs> so sinful. You make me want to go out and eat everything on the highway. Not on the highway. I want to get off the highway and find these beautiful, delicious vibrant, ethnic, tasty delights. Jane and Michael right. Stern, you guys are so much fun. Thanks for joining us, and best wishes with your road tripping and uh, eating well while you do it. Bye-bye, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Cincinnati, Toledo, off to Buffalo. Cincinnati, dancing pig. Eat the barnyard, Mr. Big. Cincinnati, dancing pig. We'll find out next what our panel of European moms has to say about how their children are being educated and what concerns they have about education policies in their countries. And we'll also check in with listeners who have some interesting stories of their own about how they dealt with the unexpected on their recent trips. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. As students prepare to go back to school and as their parents debate education policies in their local school systems, I find it's interesting to compare notes with parents in Europe and learn about the issues that concern them the most about how their kids are being educated. 
Our panel of European moms that joined us a few weeks ago on Travel with Rick Steves is back again with us today to look at how schools work where they live and what concerns they have about their children's education. Julie Sanvo was born and educated in Kansas, but she's raising her boys now in a small town in rural France. Tina Hiti and her husband are raising their family in the Lake Bled area of Slovenia. And Ilva de Silva comes to us from Stockholm in Sweden. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for having us. Ilva from Sweden, can you explain uh, your situation as a mom and education just briefly? Well, actually, my children are all grown up now. Mm -hmm. And when they went to school, it was better than now, I would say. And when I went to school, it was the best school in the world. But unfortunately, we have since um, seven years a non-socialist majority in the parliament. Mm -hmm. And they have changed the school system. So instead of having these state-run schools, we have now... Uh, private schools, private entrepreneurs that because education is free in Sweden and it will always be free. So each child born will get something we call the school money and that school money follows the child. So the parent can choose whether they want to have their child in a private school or public school. But basically there's a big change since uh, your your children um, were younger that there's yes. a conservative government now and it's a little Well more it's not conservative but non-socialist. Non-socialist. There are no no conservative. Okay, less in Sweden. Yes, in yes. Sweden. Yep. Okay, Tina Hiti from Slovenia. What is new for education, or what's your situation as a parent in, in Slovenia? There have been many changes since I went to school, and I must say that even during my school years, my education was changing all the time because we did go through different reforms, and every year almost when I was studying was changing. There were some new rules. You needed to do something different. But one thing stayed the same, and that is what worries me as a mother of a six- and a four-year-old, that in our country you need to be, you're very young when you decide what to do for your life. And you are basically choosing your career when you're 15 years old. So we'll talk about that a little yes. later, but that is something that's different than in the United States. Yes. In much of Europe, you, a child is put on a channel for mm -hmm. this or that occupation or career or level of education yeah. at an early age. And Julie Sanvo, uh, tell us your story as a mother and education in Europe. Well, I was raised in the United States, but my kids, um, and we moved to France when they were five and seven. So they've basically been in school uh, in France for all of their education. And it was quite different than here. For instance, my kids went to a one-room schoolhouse, the same one that their father went to for elementary school and things like that. I um, agree about the, the choice in France when they have to make the choice when they're teenagers. So you're saying in a few now. years, your kids are going to have to decide what they're they going to do. They are 15 and 17 now, and that's where we're at right now, is trying to decide when they're not quite ready for that decision. Wow, because I wasn't ready to decide on what I was going to do until long after that. And in Europe, if you decide early and you change... That sets you back, I believe, and it's uh, an interesting yeah, decision. Yeah, or you have a hard time changing. You know, sometimes you have to go through till the end and not change. Now, how old are kids in Europe generally when they start state-funded school in, in France? In France, they're allowed to go as soon as they're potty trained. They go to nursery school. They're required to go to school from the age of six. Age six. Yeah, it's the same in Slovenia as well. Yeah, Ilva in Sweden? Seven in Sweden. Compulsory from seven, but they start when they are six, most of them, but the first year is not compulsory. Julie, you went uh, to school in the United States, in the American system, and your kids have, right from the start, gone in the French system. What are the fundamental differences you see between the two systems, and, and which one do you prefer? Well, the first day I took my son to kindergarten in France, uh, we had been in a cooperative nursery school here in the United States where the, the ideal was the more that the parents were involved in the education, the better the child would be. And uh, the first day of school in France, I took him to kindergarten. They, they took him by the hand and pulled him in the classroom and shut the door. So um, that was very traumatic for both of us. And I tried every way I could to get into that classroom, you know, volunteering to teach English or anything. And they wouldn't let me in because uh, no parents allowed in the classroom. It's only teachers with certificates really? nationally. Because um, when we raised our kids, we were thankful they had an opportunity for us moms and dads to get involved and right. a little hands on and help out. Tina, are, are parents welcome to help out in early no, years? No, it's the same as in France, I would say. Same thing, and usually it's always heartbreaking, especially the first years of school, because you don't even wave to your kid and everybody's crying their eyes out. Wow. But yeah, that's just how it is. And in Sweden, Ilva, are, are the parents involved in the education, or is it pretty much this is not appropriate for you to be here involved? I never heard about this as a problem, <laughs> because in Sweden, everyone works, so... 
Our system is different, I suppose. We so stay at home. So everyone's working. In other words, they don't have time to go and be involved yes, in the education. Yes, yes. And children start daycare when they are. First of all, since um, we have this fantastic parental leave money in Sweden, so we stay at home with our own children for 480 days. So let's talk about that. When you have a child in Sweden, mm-hmm. you have 480 days of parental leave. Yes. So mother, Paid parental yes, leave. mother, 240 days, and the father, 240 so it's days. So par- it's not maternal leave. No. It's parental yep. leave. Yes. Wow. That's a lot of parental leave. Yes, it and, is. And generally and accepted that that's a good investment of society to have parents at home with the kids when they're first born? Obviously, yes. It's so interesting, so, the so Scandinavian then, ethic. It's just like, you, you act like, of course, why would you even ask? This is the, <laughs> this is the family values that, that we like. But then when the child is one and a half years, they start in the daycare center. And these daycare centers, they are like schools. Uh, really? So you got like a day, a year and a half where you're at home away from work to get the kids uh, up and running. And then it's quite aggressive about getting those kids into school and you back into the workforce. Yes. Attention all and take your seats. Look to your lessons, boys. We're getting an education right now on Travel with Rick Steves as our panel of European moms explain how the education system and national policies work where they live and what concerns they have for their kids' education. Ilva de Silva is from Stockholm, Sweden. Julie Sanvo is an American who married into France and is living in Burgundy. And Tina Hiti was raised in former Yugoslavia, and she's raising her family in Slovenia. Tina, we were just talking about parental, mm-hmm. maternal, paternal mm-hmm. leave. What's the story in Slovenia? The maternity leave is one year long, and it's fully paid. So you get the paycheck from the government pretty much every month. Every and parent cal- gets a year of paid leave. Not every parent, every mom. Every mom. Yeah, okay. but then they can also you can also decide if a mom maybe has a better job, the dad stays at home. So they can either yeah. the mom or the dad gets to either stay mom home. or dad, but not both of them at the same time. Okay, and then you you do you have some assurance that you can take your job back after um, that? Yes, it used to be like that, but now it's um, so changing this, a lot more. This yeah. is kind of an expensive ideal, yeah. and there's going to be a little reality check maybe about affording. Yeah, that right kind of. now they are talking a lot about changing it to cut that to nine months, and then the last three months it would be only seventy five percent pay, but mm. then your job wouldn't be guaranteed. Uh, and they are debating a lot so about months, that. If you if mm-hmm. you take nine months, you get your job back. Yes. If you yes. want more, you you're tra- threatened you risk by that, losing yeah. your job. And Julie, what is the situation in France for parental leave? In France, it's uh, for paid parental leave. It's sixteen weeks for the mother and eleven days for the father. But most mothers they can take up to a year. Uh, with I think it's between 70 or 80 percent of their pay Mm -hmm. and guaranteed their job back after one year for the first child, two years for the second child, and three years for the third child. In the United States, kids are going from class to class and they meet a lot of different kids. And I understand in Europe, sometimes the children are staying with the same group right through. What's the story on that in France? Yes, they do stay with the same group. And uh, even in in high school, they don't go to different classes. They're all in, they each have their own Mm. homeroom class and they stay with that class all day long. And and they've known these friends, boys and girls, for all their their, their years. And Mm -hmm. what what are the pros and cons of that, just in a nutshell? Well, my fear when I moved there was what happens if you have a bully in the class and, or if you Mm -hmm. have problems like that, what happens? I was lucky and never had that situation where they had a good class. But there are classes that, that the teachers have problems with and, and they're known as they so go through school that it's a tough mm-hmm. class. Famously, the class of 2015, yes, look exa- out. And, exactly. and these poor little meek ones are going to be stuck with these aggressive ones. Yeah, and that's the way yeah. it goes. On the other hand, it could be a, a beautiful class and a real blessing it, for absolutely. the kids. Tina, what's the story that way in yeah, Slovenia? Yeah, it's the same in Slovenia. We also stick with the same people for the whole elementary, and also then when you choose the secondary school, same thing. You stay with the same people. Ilva in Sweden? Mm -hmm. Same. (laughs) Okay. You know, in the United States, it seems children have options, and and we sort of, we treasure that. We don't know what we're going to do until we have to make a decision in college. But in Europe, I think you get on on an occupational or a higher education track early on. How is that uh, in in Slovenia? Are, Are kids chosen for vocational versus higher education early? Um, They have to choose basically when they are 14 years old. That's the last year of their elementary school. Mm -hmm. And they have to choose. So everybody's on the same track until they'll be ninth grade. Until about ninth grade, yeah. And then some kids are going to go for higher education. Other kids who aren't performing so well. They go to vocational colleges, yeah. They'll do trades. Yeah, yeah. In France, Julie? 
Well, that's the way it, it has been. And in the last couple of years, though, they're realizing that um, they're, they're sending kids on a certain track from a young age. And when they get out of school, if they don't do well in that track or if there's no jobs in that track, then they're automatically on chômage or unemployment collecting from that. And so now they're they're starting to speak to people in the, the parents in the schools saying, maybe you should send your kids to a little bit more of the general education in high school and give them a little bit more time. It's starting to change wow. because so if, of the unemployment problem. So if you're if you're fast-tracked into some certain trade and suddenly the industry changes, you're trained for a job that no longer exists right. and you are disadvantaged for the rest of your life. Right. That's a, a heads-up in society to see that that would be a problem. Ilva, in Scandinavia, is it, is it a similar situation? No, it's totally different, I oh, would so. say. So there we have the first mm-hmm. difference. Yeah. Uh, because it has been after the first uh, nine or ten compulsory years. Um, 99.9% continued at that upper level we call gymnasium, which is um, not to be compared with high school. We were discussing that earlier. It's uh, like three or four extra years when you get prepared for university studies. Okay. So everyone in Sweden can continue at the university, basically. But that is one of the things that are changing now with this new non-socialist government I was is talking about more, earlier. A more, um, so now they want it to be more like this technical uh, secondary so schools. So certain kids tracked into a vocation, others tracked into high education. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about education in Europe with three different moms. Talking about education in France, Sweden, and Slovenia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Stephen's on the phone in Des Moines, Iowa. Stephen, thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks very much, Rick. Um, Yeah, I just had a question about learning languages. Through traveling in Europe, I've noticed how common it seems for children to be bilingual or multilingual at an early age. My wife and I really would like our children to be exposed early to different languages. And through seeing it in Europe, it seems beneficial to do so. At what age do European children typically begin learning other languages? This is something that is a real emphasis in Europe, I believe. Julie, you came from an American background, and then you go to France. What's the um, emphasis on languages for your students? Well, they start at about the age of seven or eight in elementary school with a second language, which is usually English. But it depends on the teacher's capacity to be able to teach that language. So you'll talk to a lot of French people that say, yeah, I took it, but the teacher didn't, wasn't uh, equipped enough to teach us English. So it, it kind of depends. But by the time my kids were in middle school, they were taking English, French, of course, English, German, and Latin. Latin? By the time they were in middle school. Was Latin the exception, or is that part of the basic curriculum? It's They can choose it. Once they get mm-hmm. to middle school, then they take hmm. choices on their languages, but at least two languages. Now, Tina, Slovenia is a relatively new member of the European Union. Uh, when your parents were growing up, they probably learned Russian. Today, what's the emphasis on, on foreign language? Well, it was always a main focus. Even with my parents, they were taught Russian, but also English. But with my kids, now the older son is six years old. He started English when he was five. He doesn't speak that well, but I think he'll get there. He's How old is he now? Uh, six years old. And he's so not he fluent can, in a second language yet. No, not yet. yet. Oh, not yet. But, <laughs> but it will be soon. But when you come from a country like Slovenia, you know, nobody speaks our own language. You have to learn. How many, so, how many people speak Slovenian in your two country? Two million. Two million people yeah. in the whole world speak yeah, your language. Pretty much. And then uh, yeah. you have a pretty small world if you don't learn another language. Yeah, you have to. You don't have a choice. And I think right. what helps us a lot is not just learning languages in school. It's also that our television is not dubbed, but it's subtitled. You know, there's and different radio. countries in Europe mm-hmm. that are more enthusiastic about dubbing or subtitling. Mm-hmm. And I understand that gives the young generation a real advantage. Yes. Some countries are just uh, dubbing, and, mm-hmm. and then the kids don't have the chance to pick up the language. Yeah. What countries dub more than... I think Germany. Germany does. Italy does. I'm not sure about France. Yeah, and France. in Spain. I think yeah. I, I remember in Spain, because Portuguese people yeah. have an advantage because they get the subtitles and hear the English. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Spain or, or Germany or Italy, you go to a movie, you're likely yeah. to hear it. And generally, over. it's the countries that come from the subtitles that speak better foreign languages because they hear it all it the time. It is hearing, yes. You could actually have a policy in your country if you yeah. wanted to be heavy-handed <laughs> of not allowing dubbing so people would have yeah. to hear the foreign language. Ilva, what is the uh, priority for languages up in Scandinavia? Well, English, of course. Yeah. My children speak impeccable 
English. My generation started when we were like 14, which is a little mm-hmm. bit too late, but my children started when they were six. Stephen, thanks for your call. Yeah, thank you very much. This has been, for me, such a fascinating opportunity to share how different societies tackle this challenge of education. We've been talking with Julie Sanvo, who is an American who's been uh, raising her family in France, Ilva de Silva from Sweden, whose kids are finished with their education now, but who has uh, a lot of interesting observation from a Scandinavian point of view, and Tina Hiti, whose kids are, are well into their education in Slovenia. In general, how do you feel about education for your children in your country? Uh, Julie. Well, I think it's um, in every country, it depends on the teacher. You can have mm-hmm. a good teacher or a bad teacher, no matter what system your children are being raised in. I've been lucky enough to have good teachers all the way. I was scared when I moved there that it would be a problem. And I'm just, I'm really um, so pleased at how invested the teachers are. And you can see a difference when you have an invested teacher in the child. And I think that can be anywhere in the world in any system. So as an American mom in France, you're happy generally with the I've been happy with my with my children's That's experience, great. yes. Tina, Slovenia. My kids now are still in the nursery, so we're still getting to the school. But as far as I'm concerned, um, the only thing that concerns me is the age when we need to choose what they want to do. I think education in Slovenia is very good, especially because we do a lot of emphasis on languages. Mm -hmm. And I think if they go in that way, that will stay good. And seven or eight years from now, your kids are, the way it is now, going to have to choose where they're ultimately going to be. And your hope is that that is evolving and maybe between now and then... Maybe changing uh, to a little later age because I have a lot of friends when we were studying together and they didn't choose the right career and right now they are really miserable at their works because they don't do what they wanted to do. Half of my friends, just like me, went to the university, (laughs) hell-bent on a certain degree, and as soon as we took two classes in that degree, we decided, yeah, "Eh, it's not for me. Thank goodness we weren't committed to that yeah. when we were 15 years old. Yeah. Ilva from Scandinavia, final thoughts on education in, in your society? Well, um, one thing that I'm really happy about is that school children in Sweden, they, don't, they are not taught to learn things by heart and to ask questions, not to answer questions, but to ask questions is important and to never, ever take an answer for something that is cut in stone and ask again. Be curious and be happy about going to school. Beautiful. Thank you all so much for uh, contributing to this discussion. And I, I think a lot of American parents in their travels wonder a lot about these challenges. And it is interesting that they are they are the same from country to country and all together we can learn from each other and uh, wish a good education for our children. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Twice, one is two, twice, two is four, and four, and six is ten. We'll open the phones next for your travel reports about the memorable surprises and serendipities you've uncovered away from home. We're at 877-333-7425. And you can add your own travel tales to our online forum. You'll find it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. My name is Fabian Rüger and this is a tongue twister in German. Brautkleid bleibt Brautkleid und Blaukraut bleibt Blaukraut. And what that means is a wedding gown is a wedding gown and blue weed is blue weed. Blaukraut bleibt Blaukraut und Brautkleid bleibt Brautkleid. I've found that the more you travel, the better you get at turning unwanted surprises, things you didn't plan for, into a happy travel memory. When you get lost, you need to ask a stranger for help. It's an opportunity to connect with another culture and to broaden your experience with the world. So let's take some time now to connect with listeners like you at 877-333-7425. So let's see who's got a good story to share now about travel serendipities, the kind of surprises, the kind of setbacks that actually, if you're a good traveler, can become the highlight of your trip. Patty is calling in from Orange City in Iowa. Patty, thanks for your call. Thanks so much for having me. Have you ever had some serendipity in your travels that uh, actually became a lifelong memory? You know, we sure did. We had signed up for a Paris Greeters organization that you can get these free tours from people who just volunteer their time. Normally, they're retired people. Uh-huh. And we had signed up weeks before we went on a trip, and no one ever really got paired with us, so we kind of wrote that off on our list. We had one day left in the city of Paris. We're going to a ballet. 
But at midnight the night before, we got an email saying they had matched us with someone, and that's where our uh, unplanned encounter came into play. (laughs) So you met a stranger the next day who was joining this club of uh, Parisians that want to meet visitors, and he spent some time with you. What was it like? That's right. It was wonderful. He was a retired banker with three grown kids. He's lived all over the world and spoke five different languages. So needless to say, he was very, very interesting. And it was supposed to be a three-hour tour, but kind of like the Gilligan's Island thing, it turned out to be a lot more. (laughs) We ended up ending the night at about 1130 at night. And when we were done, he said, it it is a pity we can't go to the jazz club. But we had to get it back and pack because we were leaving for the United States very, very early the next morning. So there's this organization in Paris that just collects volunteers and they want to meet travelers and they'll just go and be your buddy for the day. Yes, and actually it's an organization, it's worldwide and it's called Free Greeters and it's in most of the cities around the world. It's even in the United States, in New York City and Chicago and our travel agent, which we hadn't even booked the trip through, happened to tell us about it and that's how really our experience started. And So this is called Free Greeters? That's correct. You can just Google that. That's correct, and you'll find a whole host of people that they try to pair you with someone and they ask you what you're interested in. You kind of take a little survey, and then they try to find someone that has common interests. Okay, and uh, just if somebody's going to Paris, there's also an organization called Paris Greeters, parisgreeters.fr for France. Great. Sounds like almost too good to be true, but uh, you could tap into this anywhere in your travels or at least give it a shot. There are clever ways to meet people like this, and, and that really does make a difference. Have you had any other experiences? Uh, Did you travel around the countryside of France? You know, we did. And when we did one time, this was last uh, summer, and we were in the Burgundy region, and we saw a big sign that said Brocant, and it was an old, rusty, dilapidated sign, but we knew Brocant meant secondhand, which is so much fun. So we turned off the main road and three side roads later in a dirt path, and we were about three kilometers down the road. We came upon this old farmhouse with five outbuildings, and a 90-plus-year-old couple invited us to come in and look around at all their buildings, and they were surprised to see us, and we think it's because they probably closed up shop maybe like 20 years earlier. (laughs) Yeah, I think they were probably surprised to see Americans who had the uh, adventurous spirit like you, where you you knew enough of the language to see a sign and go, oh, that's secondhand, you've got that in the United States too, and then you had the nerve to turn off the main road and go down the dirt path and knock on somebody's door and, and go to an antique market. And we had a great time. They were excited. We were there. They showed us their dog and posed with pictures. And it was kind of like American Pickers, French style. We dug through their buildings and found dusty armoires and broken chairs and old boxes of books and things. And at one point, my daughter said, Mom, look, there's a donkey head. We're like, what? And we Mm -hmm. came over there. It turns out the donkey, it brayed, and it was attached to a body. And it was a real live donkey whose head had gone through the (laughs) from this the stable through the whole building that it just we couldn't believe we were having those kind of memories it was just an unexpected blessing and turned out to be a highlight in our trip even though it's never going to be in a guidebook and it won't make the top 10 of anything (laughs) you know a lot of the very very best experiences are not in guidebooks you'll be especially when you have a car you're tooling around and you have to sniff out those adventures if you if you see a little cheese festival or if you if you see a bunch of people gathered at the riverbank or if you see a, a brocante sign Uh, You know, have an adventurous spirit, and good chance you've uh, found your own little discovery. Well, my husband always says, he he got this quote from someone, I'm not sure who, but our journey doesn't have a finish line, just another starting point. That's nice. I like those kind of quotes. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said, I think that the great thing about the trip is, is not the destination, but the journey itself. And that's so true. We've met people, we won't go all over the world, but we've met people from all over the world in our journeys. And when you do that, you just realize that the world is is just a much smaller place and people really aren't that different than what we are. Oh, you just nailed it there quite eloquently, the fundamental value of travel. Well, Patty, thanks for calling and uh, best wishes in your future travels. Well, thank you. And hey, i got to tell you, you're a rock star in our house. Our 13-year-old has your picture up on her bulletin board, and, you know, you rank right up there with uh, Taylor Swift. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got some travel in your blood there, so that's great. Thank you so much. Bye now. Bye. Linda's calling in in Seymour in Indiana. Hi, Rick. So glad to participate. Yeah. Do you have some thoughts on on turning serendipity into a a happy travel memory? I do. I do. Ours was a memorable experience. I can't say it was just particularly happy, but my husband and I were in France uh, driving through the Normandy region, and we left our little tension with our car, and uh, due to the French road signage, or lack thereof, we were shortly lost. Mm -hmm. We were headed to the, the Normandy beaches, and we wanted to go to the American cemetery, but as we were lost, we came upon a German cemetery. 
that we hadn't known of. If we hadn't been lost, we wouldn't have seen it. And it was so beautifully kept, and it had the the black marble mm. um, crosses, mm-hmm. and we were we were so um, soberly just gotten, you know, uh, by the experience because we come from a German area. Yeah, in Indiana, you mean. Yes, in yeah. Indiana, well, and the names the... on the crosses oh. were names that we knew from our hometown, and so yeah. we realized that, you know, the those German soldiers, that many of them were hardly more than boys. I, Linda, I've been to that cemetery. It's it's near a village named Lakamba, C-A-M-B-E. Oh, yes. It's, it's the German exactly. military cemetery, and it's pretty close to the American cemetery that we all want to go to near Omaha Beach. And yes. it is a wonderful experience, and it's a reminder that, especially, like you mentioned, you looked at every stone has the birth and the death dates of the person buried there, and most of these were just kids. It was the last year of the war, and Hitler yeah. was down to, he had to, you know, enlist the old people and just kids that barely knew how to use a gun, and uh, oh, it was just yeah. a slaughter. And, uh, you know, this is really powerful, and, and, a, and a beautiful part of your trip to Normandy is to remember just the, the horrific nature of war on both sides. Right. That, that was it, and, and to have that experience of the German cemetery and then to go to the American cemetery yeah. it was the, the complete experience. But I think a, a cool um, sort of lesson that you're sharing is you got lost, and <laughs> getting lost, you wouldn't have found that had you not got lost. So, no, so sometimes no. sometimes when you get lost, there's a reason hiding out there, and, uh, yes. and with a positive uh, sort of explorer's uh, spirit, you can turn that into a little bit of positive travel serendipity. Oh, certainly, certainly. That happened to us on another trip. We had taken my husband's parents and uh, his sister and our oldest daughter, all of us in an 11-passenger van for our uh, uh, grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. So we're all driving through Germany, and we noticed that in this small town, everyone was turning right. Everyone was turning right. So we thought, we'll turn right, too. So we followed the crowd and happened upon a band contest. Mm. Apparently in German, every village has a village band. Yeah. And this was, this was a band contest. And so we had all these bands performing and beer trucks and food, and it was a great time. Wow. You know, I've been to those, and, and they raise money for the band by having a, a cute little girl with her uh, dirndl on walking around with a, a little cask of schnapps, and she'll pour a tiny glass full of schnapps, and you take a hit, and you give her a few euros. And it's for a, a big, donation. Yeah, for a donation. <laughs> and it's quite a funny way for the band to make... The combination make a, of the cute little uh, girl and the schnapps and, is, is excellent. And the big guys with the oompa tubas and all of that, and that's just a lot of fun. All right, Linda, yes. thanks for your call. You're ha- welcome. Happy travels. You too. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking how serendipity, stuff you can't even find in a guidebook, stuff you can't plan turns into great travel memories. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Anthony's calling in in Eugene, Oregon. Anthony, thanks for your call. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. It's great to be on the show after so many long times listening to you. Oh, good. Do you have some serendipity experiences that you'd like to share to inspire us to get out there and risk making some mistakes and turning it into good memories? Oh, indeed. Uh, My very first time overseas kind of set the tone for my travels and a lot of my life, I was 20 years old and I was participating in a student exchange. I I grew up in Virginia. I went to college in Tennessee. I'd never been out of the country before. And next thing I knew, I was in Edinburgh, Scotland. Hmm. And I had gotten into the city. You know, my first day, the first time I tried crossing the street, I nearly got run over by a taxi because I looked the wrong way, you know, stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. then the next day, I get up and I'm like, okay, I am going to get to know this city. I'm going to get out there. I've looked at maps. I've looked at guidebooks. Now I've got to get out there and make my way. So I make this big plan for the day and mark down things I'm going to try to do and all this. And I walk out. I was staying in a hostel uh, just outside of the city center. I walk out of there. And on the steps of the place, there's about oh, about four or five uh, other people just sitting there and chatting. And I stand there for a second, just kind of take a deep breath, and I'm ready to launch off and this woman looks up at me from the group and says, hey, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I was going to do this thing or that thing. She's like, oh, we were going to go to Edinburgh Castle. You want to come with us? And I thought about everything that I I thought I was going to try to do, and I looked at them, and I said, yeah, Hmm. I would. (laughs) And? And we had this 
amazing day together. You know, for starters, there's so much to be said. Yeah, solo travel can be wonderful, but when you're new in a place and you're so new to being abroad, being there with a few other people who were, you know, peers, we were all students, it turned yeah. out. They're in from Germany. Yeah. We spent the day checking out the castle. We went around the old town and the new town. We had lunch at cool places and went to pubs. And it, it really set the tone, not only for those few months that I was there during that semester, but I wound up, I finished college. I went back to Scotland on a work visa. Yeah. Ever since, you know, travel has been this huge part of my life. And I think that serendipity, understanding what it was like to open yourself up to new people and new experiences really set a tone for me. It's like, yeah, you know, the world isn't all perfect or nice, but there's a lot of good in it. And if you're open to if you're open to it, you're gonna find it. Yeah, that is you know, the kind of the, the philosophy or, or, or the, the the standard operating procedure should be when presented with an opportunity, your answer is Yeah, sure. Just yes, like you said, when exactly. you met those strangers and they said, Let's go to the castle together. Yeah. It reminds me, I was just in the Holy Land, and I was in Israel, and I was going over to Palestine. And I was tired after a long day of sightseeing in Jerusalem, went over to Bethlehem, checking into my little guest house. And it was 10, 11 o'clock at night. I was just tired. I wanted to go to my room. And I met like a dozen Lutheran pastors that were there on some sort of a retreat. And they said, we're going down into the cave. Do you want to come down with us and have a fellowship? And I thought, well, I don't know these people. And I just moved in, and I'm just tired. But I thought, boy, in Bethlehem, with a bunch of Lutheran pastors going down into a 2,000-year-old cave right next to oh, Nativity wow. Church. I said, yeah. And I went down there, and it was it completely messed up my whole schedule. I had little chores I needed to do and all this kind of stuff, but I grabbed the moment. It was serendipitous, and I had a beautiful experience with them, and I'll remember it the rest of my life because I said yes. That's exactly the thing. You can always do that other stuff later. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. when these things come up, you realize that might just be more important or the better experience yeah. than what you originally had in mind. Great. Well, Anthony, I hope you keep up with uh, the travel fun and, and tapping into all that serendipity. Oh, we're we're inculcating our son into it now. Last year, this time, we were in Japan, uh, my wife and I and our son, who was then 15 months old. So, Good for you. Thanks, man. Okay, take care. Bye. We're sharing tales of travel serendipities right now on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. You can also send us your travel stories by email. The address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Frankie's calling in from Surrey in British Columbia. Frankie, thanks for your call. You're very welcome. I'm pleased to be able to uh, listen in and then contribute a little piece of what I've been up to. When what's that? One of the things that um, was one of those serendipity that you hope for when you're on holidays and visiting strange places with lots of interesting people is you have those individual personal contacts. And the one that uh, was a standout for me was in a small little mountain town uh, north of um, the Algarve in Portugal. The Algarve I found to be so busy and so um, everyone was frantically busy of let's have a good time on the beach that it wasn't a good time. But uh, there's lots of opportunities, uh, if you've got a car or if you've got access to the public transportation, to get out of the very busy areas and up into small, very personalized small towns that have been there for who knows how many eons. And this one involved going in just for a coffee. was going to go in for, and coffee there is either espresso or white coffee. If you want milk, white coffee. But um, met this gentleman who was already standing there having his own espresso and... Uh, he had a little beret on, and he was just, I don't know, in his 70s or early 80s maybe, but, you know, just a gentleman from the area. And he heard me in my very broken uh, Spanish-Portuguese ask for a cafe, and he said, are you from uh, America? And I did. said, yes, and but not from uh, the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, uh, well, where if not uh, the U.S.? And well, Canada. Ah, and he related, and you could just see his eyes just sort of go back in time, that mm. he was a professor uh, years back in the 50s at McGill University in Montreal, which is in eastern Canada. And so he said, uh, Dad, you, you know people in Montreal, and of course I live in Vancouver, the mm. other side of the country. And I said, well, I've been there once upon a long time ago, but no, I don't know anyone. But he related how wonderful he'd found Canada and the Canadian people and how he liked to speak. Uh, English with uh, other North Americans. And so it was so wonderful just sitting in this little cafe having a conversation with this gentleman, just one-to-one. And I would said that I'd come to the town learning that they did a lot of metalwork here. Uh, and so that's what I was looking for to take home with me. Hmm. So he directed me down 
two little lanes down just where someone melded, or not melded, what do you call it, when they pound out the copper. And uh, so we bought some handmade copper items, which was just, you know, I still have them in my home. Mm -hmm. But this gentleman just made the difference for that whole week that we were in that area. I love it, Frankie, when you have a a little physical souvenir of a meeting like that. So every time you look at that little piece of copper art, you're going to remember your friend that you met on that little town in the south of Portugal. You know, you came up with a very good tip. There's a lot of very beautiful and touristed uh, resort beach areas. The Costa del Sol is notorious Mm -hmm. for that, the French Riviera, and the south coast of Portugal, which I love, the Algarve. Uh, But even though the Algarve is getting touristed and intense these days, as you mentioned, but Mm -hmm. always you can go inland just a little bit. Remember, all Mm -hmm. of the vacationers crush right down to the beaches. But the, the local people, they almost get bullied away from the coast because the coast becomes expensive and they can afford to live five or ten miles inland. And I've hung out with people, both expats who are retired there and locals, in a very mellow, relaxed way, just a few miles inland from all the resorts. I remember sitting on people's porches and just lazily cracking almonds uh, that they harvested and, you know, just having a nice laid-back time with them. And you find people have a little more time for uh, a Canadian or an American visitor when they're away from the resorts, and I think that's very good advice. And those are the moments you remember. That's for sure. Long after you come home and you've tidied up all your bills, you say, well, why did I go? It's to meet the people that live in these areas. Exactly. All right, Frankie, Mm -hmm. thanks for your call. You're very welcome. Take care. Bye Bye now. Come on to my house, my house, I'm going to give you candy. Come on to my house, my house, I'm going to give you apple and a plum and an apricot or two. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, I'm going to give you figs and dates and grapes and a cake. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Aaron Harding and to our colleagues at WSHU in Fairfield, Connecticut for helping us out this week. You'll find more to each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. That's where you can listen again whenever you like. It's also where you can send us your email address so that we can contact you to be a caller on the show. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.